Hello, we're pleased you've been able to tune in to Finding Truth Matters with Dr. Andrew Corbett. Welcome to the program. Sunday morning, there was a long queue of them lined up to get in as the pastor had a basin of water and he was washing the sand off all their feet so that they could come into church. When any group of people come together, there is one, appointed or otherwise, who becomes the leader. Leaders have skills and gifts that not everyone else shares, but the group benefits from what they have to offer. The church is no exception. The Bible details what good and bad leaders leadership looks like and identifies clearly the characteristics necessary to be a leader in a church. This week, Dr. Corbett is in the book of Acts, so stay tuned and let's explore the role of elders and overseers. Let's join him now. Welcome to church. This is a long weekend and I'm glad you're here. Today, we're going to be talking about something that's super important. It's super important because I think church is super important. I think making church a commitment is super important. When I grew up, my one big ambition in life was to be a professional tennis player. And that plan was somewhat thwarted by my, particularly my mum, who's watching now, uh, her very, very strong Methodist upbringing. I think I can, you know, she would tell me about the conversation she used to have with John Wesley. I'm not saying she's old, but my goodness me. No, she didn't really have conversations with John Wesley. But her Wesleyan Methodist upbringing, and then she married an Anglican bloke, my dad, and, and they settled in an Anglican church, and that's what shaped my early upbringing. My Methodist mother and my nominal Anglican dad, who had an experience with the Lord a bit later on. And we had this guy come to the, the church, St. Matthew's Geelong, uh, East Geelong, who was a cannon. Now, some of, some of the blokes here, you guys are guns, but this guy was a cannon in the Anglican church, which means probably he's a bigger gun than most blokes who reckon that they, they, they are a gun. Anyway, and his name was John Chapman, and he had a profound effect upon my parents because what he did was he said, as a Christian... You are now a slave of Christ. Your time is not your own. Your life is not your own. He was an evangelist based in Sydney. He was highly controversial because in the more well-to-do parts of Sydney, he was actually telling these well-to-do Anglicans that just because you come to an Anglican church doesn't make you a Christian. And they were horribly upset with him about that. It was outrageous in their mind that he was saying you actually needed a relationship with Jesus Christ so that for you, Christianity was not merely a religion, but it was something that gripped your whole life. And he came to our church in East Geelong, and I remember I was maybe 14, 15 years of age. And one of the things he said, as a slave of Christ, your time's not your own, and you need to give your Sunday to the Lord, because it's the Lord's day. And this had a profound effect on my parents. And so... They decided from that point on, they were going to be in church every Sunday morning and every Sunday night. And that meant for me, I was in church every Sunday morning and every Sunday night from that point on as well, because I didn't get a choice. And so before the lights went on for me, I would be sitting in that Anglican church, not completely bored out of my brains, but often bored. Because I didn't understand the kneel here and stand here and say this and repeat that and all this. It, I just didn't get it. And I'd count the bolts in the rafters because they had magnificent cathedral ceiling in this building. And 
this was kind of my spirituality. But then when Canon John Chapman came, he preached with such passion as if he really knew Jesus and he really loved Jesus. It was earth shattering for all of us. And so from that point, I, I never played in another tournament on a Sunday. And, you know, most of the tournaments were they either spilled into Sunday or held on a Sunday. And from that point, I grew up with a conviction that Sunday belongs to the Lord. So our own children, and I've got uh, one I prepared earlier sitting in the front row here. <laughs> my kids never did sport on Sunday. When Ebony, my oldest daughter, got a job at Woolworths, they said to her, can, you know, can, are you available Sunday? She said, no, no, I'll go to church on Sundays. So nearly every Sunday morning, Woolworths would ring and say, we know you said that, but can you come in anyway? And she'd have to say, no. No, I go to church on Sunday. That's, that's a really special day for us. And now all of our kids are still the same. Sunday is the day that you give to the Lord. So this is, I'm just so thrilled that you're here. I'm so thrilled that we don't have 99% of the church. It looks like we have about 70%, but we don't have 99% of the church away. And today is a special day because one of the things that we, we looked at is we need to pray for and commission and present to you the elders and overseers of our church. And Kim said, but it's a long weekend. I said, sweetie, we're never going to get a weekend where you know, we get everyone. So here we are. Here we are today. And for those watching on the live stream, we apologize for the technical glitches that we had earlier. And I think we're, we're all back up and running now. So here's what I think we also need to know. Some of you may have had a very negative church experience. There may be people watching and church was a really negative experience for you. Perhaps there were things that were said or done that negatively impacted you. And there is such a thing as spiritual abuse of people where things can be said. And for those that care about people and care about the church, sometimes we, we have to spend some time to undo some of those things. There's all kinds of ways that people can be abused in a church. We don't want to be that kind of church. And we also want to be the kind of church that is very clear about what we're doing. So here's my question for you right now. Do we want to grow? Let's try that again. Do we want to grow? We do. You know, we, we just read that thing in Acts chapter 12 where the church was praying for the release of Peter. And when God answered it, not the way they thought it was going to be answered, and Peter turns up at the door, knocking at the gate. <laughs> they couldn't believe it. Like it was just this. And so here's the question. If we want to grow and we're praying for that to happen, do we really want it to happen? Do we really want to see this church grow so that every Sunday you come in and that chair that you always sit in, someone else is sitting on it? That place where you park every Sunday, Mr. Quinn. There's another car parked there. Are we going to be okay with that? What about the people who come in and you may have an issue with tattoos and they haven't got any skin left where they haven't put a tattoo? Are we going to be okay with that? Are we going to be okay 
with people coming in who have no church experience at all. And they could be disruptive or they could have kids that are disruptive. Are we okay with that? If you've seen the, uh, was it the Jesus Revolution movie? When the local hippies of the 1960s, late 1960s, started to come into this church because they tried drugs, they tried free love, they tried Indian religion and just nothing gelled with them. And, they, and someone, a guy by the name of Lonnie Frisbee, had an encounter with Christ and he began to share this encounter with others. And, and he said, it's not Eastern religion that you want, it's not drugs you want, it's not free love you want, it's Jesus you want. And they said, let's try. And they did, and they found he was right. Jesus was exactly who they were looking for all their life. They came into the church and having, you know, sort of walked along the beach that morning, many of them came in and barefoot and brought sand on their feet and into the church. And the, the people who were part of that dying church complained about all the sand going in the carpet. It was the elders of the church. Thank you, Kim, pointing that out. And so you remember what the, what the pastor did when, when he said, okay, I, I, will, I will make sure that never happens again. Thinking, they heard, good, he's not going to let these young hippies with their dirty feet ever come back into our church. But instead, the next Sunday morning, there was a long queue of them lined up to get in as the pastor had a basin of water and he was washing the sand off all their feet. So that they could come into church. Do we have any volunteers? Who knows what God could do if he answers our prayer that this church grows. And so in order for us to grow, we need to have shepherds in our church. And I want to introduce this concept to you that this is actually another word for elders and overseers. And this is what I want us to understand. If you have your Bible, I'd like you to turn to Acts chapter 20. We're going to kick off around verse 17. If you haven't, you can watch on the screen. But if you've got your Bible, then read along with me because this is going to be the foundation of what we're going to do this morning. Now from Miletus, he, Paul, sent to Ephesus and called for the elders of the church to come to him. And when they came to him, he said to them, You yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, Asia being the region of Turkey today, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews, how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house. Very important point there that the early church is often thought of as a house church movement without realising that some of those householder churches could hold up to 200 people. Testifying, he says, both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now, behold, I'm going to Jerusalem constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. But I do not account my life of any value nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course 
and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And now, Paul tells them, Behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. So Paul knows that on his way to Jerusalem, which is where he's going, and he stops off on the, the shore, and if Ephesus is somewhat inland from Miletus, the port city there, and he knows that he's going to go to Jerusalem, and he knows that he's going to become a prisoner of Rome. He knows that that imprisonment will land him in Rome, standing before Caesar. And he knows that that will be the countdown for his own execution. That's why he said to them, none of you will see me again after this. And he was right. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. So this is the apostolic foundation of this church. You read this in the previous chapter in Acts chapter 19 that Paul had planted this church in Ephesus and now he's reminding them of his two years that he was there establishing the church. So Paul says to these elders, pay attention, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce Wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. This week I wrote in the pastor's desk, you do not need to fear the whisper of the wolf. Jesus spoke about the role of a shepherd And the enemy that would attack the shepherd being the wolf. And the wolf would come after the sheep. And the shepherd's role was to guard the sheep against wolves. And Paul the Apostle is saying the same thing. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. So he didn't just preach. He prayed. He didn't just preach and pray, he prayed for them and he prayed with such pathos, that's passion, emotion, feeling, that he was driven to tears for them. And he's telling them, you know this, they saw him and now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up. And to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I coveted no one's silver, gold or apparel. Paul was not in the ministry of pastoring a part of his apostolic role because he was being paid. That was not his motive. He was there because Christ had called him and he loved Christ and he was fulfilling that responsibility. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities and to those who were with me. In all things, I have shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak 
And remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. Now, this is interesting because that's nowhere recorded in the Gospels, but they knew it. They knew that this is what Jesus had said. So we have evidence now that there are things in the Gospels that left other things out. And this is one of them. Jesus said, it's more blessed to give than to receive. Don't always be thinking about church being what I get out of it. But what can you put into it? He's telling these elders. And when he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. And there was much weeping on the part of all. They embraced Paul and kissed him. And this morning when I pray for the overseers, there is no need to bow down and kiss me at all. Just pointing it out. There's not a biblical precedent here. Now, God has ordained. This is, this, I think this is super important. We see in the Old Testament that God has ordained that his people are to be led by called and gifted leaders. My first doctorate was actually on this topic of leadership and the structure within a church. That was, that was my, my doctoral studies, my dissertation. Let me give you a snapshot of what we mean when we say God called and gifted leaders. We see from the establishment of the Old Testament in the book of Genesis, we then move into Exodus immediately and we see God calling a leader. His name was Moses. God called Moses to lead his people. Eventually, what happened was Moses was leading people and it got to the point where it was just too much for him. So we come, in, we come into Exodus chapter 18 and Jethro, his father-in-law, sees that Moses is, is just burning the candle at both ends. And so Moses was counseled by his father-in-law to appoint other leaders to help. So this is important. Moses was never meant to carry the load all by himself or to be the only one. And so he appointed other leaders. Eventually, we see that there were other people, when I'm skipping a whole segment of scripture, called judges who came in and led the nation of Israel in deliverance of their oppressors. But we get to the point where they cried out for a king. They asked for a king. God gave them what they wanted, which was King Saul. He turned out to be a disaster. And so God said, let me appoint a man after my own heart. His name is David. And David was the leader of the nation of Israel as its king. This again is important, by the way. It is, by the way. Before David became king in 1 Samuel 16, we read of his anointing by Samuel in verses 12 and 13. When David came in and God said to Samuel, this is the youngest of, of eight boys in Jesse's family and, and he didn't look like he, he wasn't, he was 16 years of age. 16 years of age when he was a, anointed the next king of Israel. He had extraordinary gifts. How do we know that? Because in the same chapter it says this, that King Saul's heart had become so corrupted by this point, he was inflicted with demons. Tormenting spirits, it says, would come upon him. And so the people around King Saul said, we need someone who has power over these demons. And so who did they call? The young shepherd boy, David. When David came in and ministered his gift... The 
spirit that tormented, the demonic spirit that would torment King Saul, left him for that time. David, in Jewish tradition, had the power to exorcise, that is, conduct exorcisms, of people inflicted with demons. Jewish tradition says that he gifted that gift somehow to Solomon, and Solomon could do it as well. The son of David, Solomon, could exorcise demons. When Jesus comes along, he refers to himself as the son of David and what was one of the main features of his ministry. He cast out demons. And that was one of the validating things that said Jesus was Messiah. Just by the way, when Israel's kings after in the line of David abandoned God, God then sent in other leaders, prophets, to lead them back into repentance, to lead them into the way God would have them go. And then eventually we come to the New Testament and God called and sent his son to lead all people back to God. I'm giving you this and we'll continue just to go through to the end of the, the Bible itself to make the point that there are some people who think we don't need any leaders. We can just figure it out ourselves. But I want you to see, and I'm not trying to put it into Scripture, I'm trying to get it out of Scripture, that God has always called leaders to lead. There was someone who described American politics as the President of the United States saying, there go my people, I must follow them for I am their leader. And it's probably not just American politics. That's not leadership. Christ, the one whom God had sent, then called 12 apostles to lead and establish his church. Out of those 12, there was another group, the 70. And in the 70, we read in Acts chapter 1, verses 16 to 26, that when Judas had fallen, they looked for someone to replace him to join the 12. And there's a significance to 12 apostles. And that person had to come out of the 70, the group of 70. The point there is Christ called and led and he trained them to be leaders. God wants his church led with those who are gifted and called to be leaders. This is what Jesus said to his 12. He said to them, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Get this. Please get this. Go your way. Behold, I'm sending you out as what? Lambs? An army of lambs in the midst of wolves. What? Yes. And to understand this further, please read my pastor's this this week. This is the word of the Lord to us, church, right now. We're at a time when there are wolves attacking the church from every quarter all over the place. And we need to understand that the demonic foes that hate you, hate Christ, hate God, hate the church, want to do 
wolfish things to you and to the church. Jesus described it in John chapter 10, verse 12, where he says, The wolf comes to snatch and scatter the sheep. It's a demonic strategy. But Christ appointed shepherds to be like lambs. And guess what? Christ is the ultimate shepherd. First Peter 5. He's the ultimate shepherd. And he's also the something of God. The lamb of God. And it's interesting that that, that word lamb in John's gospel is the Greek word amnon. And I'm not going to go too much into the Greek. Just relax. But you know, this is an important point. Because in the book of Revelation, when John, the same John who wrote the gospel of John, described Jesus as the amnon of God, God, the Oz, in the book of Revelation, John chooses another word for lamb, and it doesn't just mean the same as lamb, it means baby lamb. Defenseless, completely defenseless. It's the Greek word anion. It means a, a tiny lamb. The tiny lamb conquered everyone conquered all the forces of evil and when he sends us out as lambs among wolves we are utterly dependent on him church we need him the last surviving now we're coming into the book of revelation so we're just about through the new testament the last surviving apostle that is john oversaw the leaders of the seven churches of asia minor starting with the church at ephesus the most written two church in the new testament Ephesus, Smyrna, Thyatira, Laodicea, Pergamum, these seven churches, he wrote to the angel at each church. That word angel is the Greek word angelos, which means the messenger to, the messenger to. Who is the messenger to? Today we would call that the pastor. So John was the overseer over these churches, but particularly over the leaders in each church, the pastor, and he gave them a word. So you read Revelation chapter 1. Jesus communicated to an angel, an angel communicated to John and told John, communicate this to each of the angels in each of these seven churches. One angel in each church, the pastor, who then would have communicated it to the group of elders and overseers and deacons. Now prior to this, so we've now gone through the whole Bible. All I want to do is make the case for you that there is appointed leaders that God wants in his church. Now, if you come from the brethren type of church, this could be a newsflash to you. Because John Nelson Darby, who was an Anglican minister who had a fight with his bishop, said, that's it, I'm never going to have anyone tell me what to do ever again. In fact, I'm never going to have anyone tell me what to do again. John Nelson Darby was British, although he does sound Australian at this point, right? And he said, we don't need leaders. We're all brothers, which is how the word brethren church came into being. I've been in a few brethren churches where I've spoken with the elders of that church. And it takes about five minutes to figure out who actually the leader is. So even in a brethren church where they say we don't have a leader, they do have a leader. Now, this is what Paul, 
when he established churches, he said you got to appoint elders and deacons. So when he wrote to Titus, he had sent him to Crete. This is what he said to Titus. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery and insubordination. And here's the point. We're going to see this. Paul will say this over and over in a different culture, a different context, a different location. If someone's going to be an elder or an overseer and they've got children, it's really important that they know how to lead their own children to Christ. It's super important that they, they train their children to follow Christ. Like, it's super important. I'm not sure if I mentioned the word super important because it is super important. And Paul says this here. For an overseer, Paul tells Titus, as God's steward, that means someone who looks after something that's not theirs, a steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain. But this is what he must be, hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy and disciplined. In reading Stuart Piggins two volumes on the history of the evangelical church in Australia over and over and over he points out how God raised up a leader who was impeccably good impeccably humble and impeccably holy I want to be like that I want the leaders in our church to be like that I want our church to be like that and he says it starts with those who are leaders and he's telling Titus, this is what an overseer must be. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word. That is the Bible as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it, who contradict the Bible. A friend of mine, Peter, who's the chairman of Prison Fellowship Australia, who's been going into prisons for most of the time that I've known him, even before he was the chairman of Prison Fellowship of Australia, with a heart for the broken, a heart for people who've fallen onto the wrong side of the tracks. And he said to me, Andrew, this thing in Titus 1.9, have you ever seen that? Have you ever seen an elder stand up in a church and publicly rebuke someone who taught something false? I don't know if you have. But I haven't. But Paul says that's what an overseer must be able to do. When Paul wrote to his other lieutenant, now by the way, Crete, um, and as Josiah has pointed out, I'm a master air map consultant. Josiah, I, so Crete over here, there's a bit of a water thing here. Greece here, Macedonia up there. Turkey over here, Asia Minor. Now we're in Asia Minor, Paul writing to Timothy. That's all I wanted to do there. To his other, I was just showing off to Josiah, that's all. To, my, to his other lieutenant, Paul's other lieutenant, Timothy, the Apostle Paul gave the qualifications needed for both overseers and deacons. And this is how he put it in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1. This saying is trustworthy. Wow, there's a saying? That anyone who aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. That was a saying? Wow. So here's, I guess, the point, a couple of things. One is, what a great saying. 
You see a young person who says, one day I want to be a leader in the church. Well, you're aspiring to a noble thing. That's why we have that saying. He who aspires to the office of overseer desires a noble task. And it's the office of overseer. Office means you have a role. So not every overseer is in the same role. But the office of overseer, someone who has an office to do something, and we'll point that out in a moment. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach. Where there's smoke, there's fire. So there should be no smoke. The husband of one wife. Now, people have said, oh, this this means if you're divorced and remarried, it cancels you out. I think Paul has in mind polygamy here. The overseer must not have three or four wives simultaneously. And you might go, ha, 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 ha. Only because I said it in a funny way, I guess. Thank you. And... (laughs) But, the, but, but for us, it, it does sound ridiculous. But for missionaries who've gone into, say, Polynesian cultures or African cultures or cultures where polygamy was a thing, and those people have come to Christ, they've now, and I, when I studied missiology, they, they presented cases where missionaries would come in and entire villages would turn to Christ, and every man had four wives. And now what do you do? If you want to know, I'll tell you later. But Paul says, anyone who's going to be leader in the church should have one wife. And probably because one's enough. One's more than enough. Thank you, Brother Michael. Especially if she's perfect. I'm saying, I'm just repeating what you're saying because I'm sure Jules watching by live stream so that she'll, because it's points. It's points we're after, isn't it? points yeah and they're very brown aren't they these points um, um, sober-minded self-controlled respectable hospitable able to teach not a drunkard not violent but gentle not quarrelsome not a lover of money he must manage his own household well with all dignity keeping his children submissive that means you jack submissive to your dad how he will care for god's how will he care for god's church and paul says What happens in a family is a microcosm of the church because the church is a family. The church is like a family. And so Paul, going on, says he must not be a recent convert or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. There's this contest that's happening in the spiritual realm. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace, into the snare of the devil. Hmm. Deacons, now here we have the second category of leaders, deacons. The word, the Greek word is diakonos, and, the, and deacons must likewise be dignified, not double-toned. By the way, diakonos is the most common description Paul gave of himself. It can be translated as servant. Not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain, They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience and let them be tested first. Then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Their wives must likewise be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, same as the overseers, managing their children and their own households well for those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus so I said before 
I was going to cut with the Greek. I wasn't going to go too much Greek. I lied. Here's two Greek words that I just need you to know. The first word is translated overseer, and it's the Greek word episkopos, or it's actually episkopes, but my, my word thingamajiggy wouldn't allow me to do the ace on the end of the Greek there, episkopes, which is episkopos. Now, if, if you're familiar with different types of churches, you're going to go, oh, that sounds like episcopalian which is a church that has bishops, say the Catholic Church or the Anglican Church, that kind of thing. And the second Greek word that I'm introducing to you is the word presbyteros, and that's translated into our English Bibles as elder. So what we have are these two words, overseer and elder, and they are slightly different. Elders govern, overseers watch over and minister. And so today... We are commissioning elders and overseers. All of the elders are overseers. Not yet are all the overseers elders, just as a distinction. But essentially, you can make a case that when it comes to ministry, function in a church, they do the same thing. As we can with another word, which I haven't put on there, but I've already overloaded you with too many Greek words this morning, but if I was to overload you with another one, I would introduce the word poimene, which is the word pastor. And it's only used once in the New Testament, by the way. So because of these different words, we actually have churches that are structured differently. They have different types of leadership structure. They have different types of government structures. So some of the government structures are congregational government. That is... In those cultures where democracy is a, a thing, oftentimes you'll find churches there where everyone gets a vote. Now this can, this can go well or it can go really horrible. That's congregational government churches. Then you can have episcopal churches where the bishop, the episcopos, gets the kind of the final say. So for example, uh, in town, a good friend of mine, Dale Courtney, who was ordained Courtney was was the the pastor of Holy Trinity Anglican Church in town great guys just finished up and John Tung he's a great guy who's the uh, the the temporary uh, rector there now they're they're waiting on uh, getting a new minister in there and so I said to him how does that happen does the church appoint them he said oh no 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 it has to be with the approval of the bishop. Well, that's an Episcopal church. That's, that's how it works. The bishop gets the final say. And then you've got plurality of leadership type churches, which are Presbyterian churches. So the presbytery of the, the they're probably called presbyters or elders in that church, they collectively make the decision. So it's a collective thing. Here's the thing also, as a church grows, it does need leadership structure in the same way that the human body needs a skeleton to grow. So does a church. So as a church grows, and if you think about it, in the, very first, the first church that Kim and I planted was in uh, Williamstown. And we had Tyrant at that point, didn't we? And then Ebony was born, I think, during that time. A week into it. A week into planting a church our second child was born our timing was impeccable and 
So we plant this church in Williamstown in Melbourne. We've got Tyrone and we've got Ebony and Kim and myself. So we had a, a church plan of four people and um, because we, we had Ebony because we believe in church growth. So one, one service, and I kid you not, one service, we're in the Williamstown Scout Hall. The night before, there'd been a party. And there was beer bottles and beer cans everywhere. And we're in Sunday morning, and I'd already grabbed a broom, and I'm sweeping beer bottles and beer cans out of the way and setting up that I was believing for revival. So I set out 20 chairs. We put an... We, we had an ad and we had things and we were hoping to God that someone would turn up. <laughs> and that morning, one other person turned up. And I think you got up to go and feed Ebony. <laughs> so there's one-year-old Tyrone <clears throat> and this one visitor. And without missing a beat, I just kept preaching at him. As if there was already 20 people here. Now I'm saying this to say that in those days when we started that church, we were there for three years, we did everything. I was the musician. I was the preacher. I was the, I was the everything. I was the setup guy. I was everything. If you could see into the spiritual realm, you would see I was wearing hats and there would have been a lot of them because each hat representing a responsibility. But as the church grows... You take some of those hats off and you share those hats around. So now there's more people wearing hats as well. And then eventually as the church grows into the hundreds, you need to restructure again. And the, and the access that you may have had to the senior pastor means that that access now is, is, is shared. And that means that it, it, it may be that you're speaking with an elder or an overseer instead because just just the way that structure has to work now it has to and, and if it doesn't the result is you'll burn leaders out it's as simple as that so what are we doing which structure are we operating on we're operating on an elder overseer and deacon coordinator leadership structure we have a church board that looks after governance policy finance, property, and the partnership role. That's the board right there. It's administrative in that sense. And then we have elders and coordinators who we're going to commission in a moment. And next week, we'll deal with the deacons and coordinators. But today, that's what we're going to do. In this role, just as John wrote to the angelos, I believe God has called me to be the angelos of this church. So the senior pastor is the first among equals. I'm not superior. I'm just one of the overseers. But my office, my role, carries the greatest load of responsibility. That's what a senior pastor is. And I hope in the coming years there are young men and perhaps young women who aspire to become a senior pastor. And we live in a culture that does not crave more responsibility but I hope in this church we do because after all it's a saying isn't it that we've got here that I'm starting today that anyone who aspires to become a pastor and an overseer an elder aspires to do a noble thing the Bible says so these words shepherds pastors elders overseers I'm saying 
They essentially mean the same thing, but the roles might be different. That's it. The roles might be different. So what do these roles look after? They're also called officers, guardians, protectors, governors, administrators. By administrators, I mean administering the grace of God. It says in 1 Peter 4.10. Ministers, that's the word diakonos, servant. Leaders, teachers, counsellors, intercessors. So from this point, we will essentially have a council of overseers and elders. And here's what I said to the, the newly formed board after the last annual general meeting we had where we established a, a new board. I said this, if my health suddenly deteriorates with, to the point where I am incapable of functioning, then it's these people, the elders and overseers whom you consult to appoint a new ungloss, a new pastor. Now, I charge you today to watch over your own souls. I charge you to watch over the sheep to whom God has placed you as overseers. May you protect the sheep from wolves. May you guard them. May you minister out of your relationship with God and his word to protect, to build up, to lead, to guide and counsel this congregation here in the role that you have been appointed. Now, Father... May we, as your people, experience the growth that we said right from the outset of this message that we each desire to see. And may each of these overseers have an anointing and grace to be able to lead and grow this church. In Jesus' name, and everyone said... If you'd like to listen again or you've missed a program, you'll find an archive of all previous episodes on our website, findingtruthmatters.org. For tonight's program, select Elders and Overseers from our online store. You can also find the podcast by subscribing to Finding Truth Matters on iTunes, Spotify or SoundCloud. As we've heard tonight, the church was designed to feature different leadership roles, each one requiring people of exceptional character. As a church grows, so does its governance structure to continue to offer leadership to those in the church. More from Dr. Corbett next week. Dr. Corbett is pastor of Lagana Christian Church and president of ICI Theological College Australia. Thank you for joining us. We look forward to meeting with you again at the same time next week for another Finding Truth Matters.